I'm Katie. And I'm Michael. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. I'm going to go with probably more than a little mad. That seems about right. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Um, so a couple of years ago, I was at the Brooklyn Museum walking through and did came across. I did see dinner did party. Did you? I want to yes. talk about it later. Can we talk about it later? I think we're about to talk about it now because <gasps> that's how I found out about my lady for today. Um, so saw a dinner party, was sort of like blown away by Can you this explain room. what dinner party is to Yeah. So dinner party is this um, art installation by this American artist named Judy Chicago. Great name. In the Brooklyn Museum, it's this room with a number of large tables with place settings that are individualized for various women throughout history and so each is sort of customized and speaks to Mm -hmm. sort of whatever they're known for artemisia has a place setting interesting to note that can we pause my dog is making a scene what do you want you need to listen to michael's story yeah (laughs) yep sorry um it's interesting that you should mention artemidius has a place because artemidius it's okay artemidius Artie, keep going. Artie, me. Artemisia. Artemisia. It's interesting that Artemisia has a place because Hildegard of Bingen, mm. who's the woman I want to talk about today, also has a place. Mm. And I was really taken by Hildegard's because it's modeled after Gothic cathedrals, so everything looks like this gorgeous stained glass and is really, really cool. Do you know who else has a place setting? Who else? Judith. Yes. She's got a knife going through her, Jay. <laughs> That is so appropriate. Listen to our Artemisia episode for more about Judith. Anyway. I think we need to make a field trip to the Brooklyn Museum now. I really want to go. I I looked at some pictures while I was researching, and it looks like I just really want to see that. It's really, really cool. It looks really good. Um, Okay. So Hildegard. Hildegard. Who is she? What is she? She Sounds like an old name. It is an old name. So she Von Bingen? What was it? Hildegard of Bingen. Of Bingen. Bingen? Bingen. Um, it's a region in Western Germany, or at least what is now Western Germany, what was then maybe part of the Holy Roman Empire. Whoa. So we're going way back. Wow. Think like 1100s. <laughs> so like solid Middle Ages That's here. so old. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so she is born in 1098 wow. to a family of sort of like, they're nobles, but they're not super rich um, in what is now Western Germany um, near the town of Spoonheim. Which I'm sure I'm I love German. I love German language stuff. Um, she is the Spoonheim. tenth child of the family. Chill. Um, Wait, out of how many? Out of ten. So she is. She's baby. Ten of ten. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're she like we're done. Apparently, spent we're not going to be alive for most of these like, kids at lives anyway. No, it's yeah. I, and the the super fascinating thing about her family is there's no record of the other kids. They're like pretty sure there was like seven who lived to adulthood maybe that's good odds but like then yeah it's still like that's why you had so many in a way <laughs> that no birth control oh boy oh god welcome to medieval europe everyone welcome to like not that long ago yeah um and the fascinating thing about hildegard is around age three she starts having these visions okay not really sure what they are at first but okay eventually kind of figures out or at least things. I'm a little worried about what she's famous for, but okay. She is indeed famous in part for these visions uh-huh. um, that she starts having at age three. Somewhere. So an imagination? Sorry. 
she, or she has visions. We'll we'll get well yeah. It's it's she's super three. fascinating to like. I had visions piece it when out. I was three. I had a friend named. She's something. also apparently really sick when she's young, oh. so it's possible. Fever dream. Yeah, some people think it might be hallucinations related to some illness. Yeah. Um, but somewhere between age eight and age fifteen, it's the Middle Ages, so like things are a little fuzzy. Um, she gets sent to live at a Benedictine monastery. Mm. Um, sort of this idea that like you give a certain percentage of your income to the church, yeah, and, like tithing, and so there's she often this concept. Ch- of like dedicating yeah. one of your children's mm. lives to the church Mm-mm. as like a form of tithing, mm. and so she, in a way, gets paired up with this it's other 10%. nun. Ten percent of your children. Yep, oh, exactly. No. <laughs> oh, uh, so it's a girl. So and it's a girl. It's a nice little. Yeah. So she gets sent to live with this nun. It's a monastery? It's a monastery. But it's nuns. Yes. So it's this community of male Benedictine monks. That has a female community attached to it. And mm. this is pretty common in the Middle Ages where you'll have male and female communities that's not mixed, but they're occupying sort of the same area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's living with the female community, um, particularly with this one nun named Judah, J-U-T-T-A, Judah. Um, okay. who is an anchoress. And they take religious vows together. What does that mean? We'll, we'll get to that. Okay. Um, in 1112. So she would be um, 14 at that point. They take vows? Um, and take vows. She takes vows at 14? She takes vows at 14. To, for what? To, to like, a nun? Uh, poverty, chastity, obedience. So to a like, nun. commit to being a nun for the rest of her life. Right. Um, and then they're, the technical You know what you want is, at 14, you know what I mean? Right. I mean, but if you're thinking, like, I'm maybe going to get 30 years, like, 14. So third of my life. Let's go for it. Um, <laughs> Let's do this for the rest of it. And they're, the term is they're enclosed together at a monastery in Dissi Bodenberg. Okay. German. Um, but in, so back to the anchoress comment. Yeah. It's a weird term, right? I've never heard of it. Yeah. It's this very specific medieval monastic tradition of literally enclosing people, usually women, in the walls of churches. So like, so think about this. Like you have a room yeah. that is built into the wall of the church uh-huh. and it is then sealed up after you enter and you never leave. And your job is to like be there and pray and be like a resource for people to come talk to, but you never leave that room ever again. I have so many questions. What? Why do masochists find the Catholic Church? Is one question that we don't need to answer right now. No. My second question is: That's how crappy life was at that time. That that was seen as like a lifestyle mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to be had. That's not a question. That's just a comment. <laughs> How many of these were there? It's not super common. Great. So, like, glad most, to hear it. Most monastic communities. You what do would you like... think? What do you think the origin of that is? So, there's a couple of different weird strands in Christian monasticism that kind of come together to this. One of them is the like the desert tradition of like going out, living alone by yourself. Totally. Which is super hard to replicate in Europe because there are no deserts. Big theme of Jesus. To, like, live alone in. So you, like, yeah. physically cut yourself off from the world. Yeah. There's this idea of, like, praying at all hours with the idea being that, like, you, the church is constantly praying. So, like, this person is literally always in the church, potentially always praying. Um, oh, okay. And then it's this idea of, like, you, when you enter a monastery, you're enclosed in the monastery, and they took it a little literally in some Somebody cases. Somebody goes too far. Yeah. There's always, like, 
Okay, Bob, we get it. You're like super faithful. Exactly. So my my favorite question is, did only women do this, or was were there men anchors? It's a predominantly female. Thing, Shocking. But men shut them up it in a room. Well. Shocked by that. Shocked that the women <laughs> would cleave to that. Mm-hmm. Cool. That cool. seems chill. So you're in a room. How do you get? How do you get things? Uh, how do like, you get rid of things? You know what I mean. A, there's some holes in the wall that you pass things in and out of. Ugh. Yeah, the logistics of it are like, not great. Hugged or or like. So that's the thing. So sometimes you, you get would a have buddy. A buddy. So Hildegard was this lady's buddy. Yes. At that's fourteen, what you're yes. in a room with a nun for the rest <laughs> of your. Oh my god. Yeah, and so the way it worked for Hildegard is. Um, she was not in there full time. Like she was sort of doing other work on the monastery and then like could, I'm assuming like pop in through the hole somehow to like hang out. There was a Hildegard hole? <laughs> a little unclear. Um, you, is, isn't the point to like be for, stuck? For the nun, yes. But I think it's more of like a, you decide to be in there and not leave as opposed to like literally like oh. being like. There's not like a, a ground it's not, situation. Right. It's not like the hole is like just barely small enough to like stick something in like. There's the potential There's for an like, emergency to pop in and out, right? Yeah, because that's, that's the other thing is like the shit goes down and like you're stuck in there. Yeah, so it's like not medieval shit. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's exactly. Yeah, what a what an existence. It's a choice. I don't want to cast aspersions on somebody's no, lifestyle, but choice, it's a choice. But that's not for me choice. for sure. No. I'm also trying to figure out like my favorite person that I'd want to hang out with Forever. in a tiny room. And pray with all day. And I can't think of one. I can't think of one person that I would enjoy doing that with. Yeah, no, I... Because at some point, you're just... Frankie, even. There's times when we're snuggling and I'm just like, I'm, you're, I need some space. <laughs> I need I need to miss you. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Um, and so, this is kind of like their deal for a while. Okay. Um, and then, when Judah dies in 1136, Hildegard gets elected to sort of succeed her as leader of this monastic community. Okay. Um, as an anchoress or just as a... Just as a and Just as Hildegard. Leader. Yeah. Okay. Um, but the abbot, so the head of the male community they're attached to, mm-hmm. like, basically wants to, like, make it official, like, make her what's called a prioress, which is basically, like, you're the official leader right. of this community and you're also my assistant. Um, but she's, like... You're the leader of, of the women's The women's side? community. Yeah. Um, and it puts her, like, officially subordinate to him. So basically he's in charge, super in charge. And she's like, well, here's the thing. I had a vision from God, told me to move the female community to a different town <laughs> called Rupertsburg. So I'm going to do that. He's <laughs> like, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to stay here. She's like, no, 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 I'm going to do that. So she goes over his head to the archbishop and is like, I'm going to move this. And he's like, cool, yeah, go for it. But the abbot still won't let it happen. He's like, no, I'm not going to let you leave, even though the archbishop has said it's okay. What were the women contributing to the community? I'm assuming they're probably doing, like, most monastic communities, they'd be growing food, taking care of, like, animals. Cattle like and stuff, yeah. Participating in suddenly half the people leaving. and you're like, well, we've got a lot more work we have to do now. Yeah. Um, and also a lot less money that we're making. They could have gone with her, though, right? They could have. They didn't want to. They kind of liked Did what they were. Did she ask them to? I, unclear. Probably not. Um, sound like she was a fan. No. Okay. But so then this thing happens. Where she gets paralyzed all of a sudden, and the like the the way the mythology the legend is is that like she gets paralyzed. The abbot is like trying to move her to like physically like see if she's faking. She's not. He's finally convinced that it's like God's will that they move. And then the moment he decides that they're like allowed to move, she's unparalyzed. So take from that what you will. Okay. Um, but so in the eleven forties, they like. The nuns move, and they mm. start their own monastery. Mm-hmm. 
and Hildegard's in charge. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she's got some uh, some tricks up her sleeve, one I, might say. Tricks? I think God's helping her. <laughs> Who's to say? Um, she says God, but... She does. And this is where this next thing comes in. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in the 1140s, uh, she has a vision from God that basically tells her to write down all of these other visions you've been having. Um and this is not necessarily like a super common thing, like no. especially for female mystics yeah. to like record visions. It's like not super common, but she's like, okay, we're going to do this. So she works with her confessor and over the course of a decade produces this book called the Skivias, which is basically a collection of all of her visions, which like we should be clear are like really either like prophetic or super apocalyptic. So they're not necessarily these like super rosy things. Uh, and it's her first piece of theological writing and we should be clear like when women do this oftentimes in christian traditions they get burned at the stake it's a witch it's like a witch thing right Mm -hmm. because they're outside of the formal systems of control it tends to be like more charismatic and less intellectual and so the male authority figures are super not okay with it but for a change when she submits her book for approval the theologians look at it and they're like no, this tricks out. This is, is okay. Is it because of her religious They think take? part of it is because she, the way she presents it is super orthodox. Mm. And so they're like, well, this is cool because this reinforces what we're trying to get across. Yeah. And there's a bit of a heresy problem in Germany at this point. It happens from time to time. And they're like, this is a really good tool to keep the heretics sort of like on the down. Mm. Like, she's awesome. Mm. People seem to really like her. Mm. If we publish this book, if we like make her a thing... That might help us fight the heretics. And it even gets to the point where the Pope is like, no, no, this checks out. Let's, like, make this happen. Um, and so over She gets the, to the Pope? She gets to the Pope. Her and the Pope apparently write letters to each other. That's not, one of the few women to, like, a little thing. write letters to the Pope. She actually has, like, a really extensive correspondence. She's one of the few medieval people whose, like, letters have survived. What and Pope are we on right now? Is it bad Pope? Good Pope? Eugenius III. They're all pretty bad. Not great, but not, we're not at, like, Renaissance Pope level. Of we're life. not at Borgia Popes. No. Okay. So they're, like, they're doing their, they're trying to do their best. Like, this is the point where the German kings are kind of fighting with the Popes about, like, who is the successor to the Roman Empire thing. Right. And Pope solidly lands on Hildegard's side. He's like, you check out. This is okay. We're not gonna burn you. We're going to, like, give you the stamp of approval. Hold, please. Hey, Frankie. Sorry. Keep going. (laughs) I wasn't sure how much noise she would make. And so she goes ahead and writes not one but two more of these sort of prophetic visionary texts. Yeah. One of them is called uh, the Liber Vitae Meritorium, which means, like, the Book of Life's Merits. Mm. And the other one is the Liber Divinorium Operum, which is like the book of divine works. Um, and they both contain these sort of huge scale visions of the history of salvation. They tend to be full of these big female characters, which is really cool. Um, so particularly the book of divine works has these like hugely important female allegorical figures like wisdom and love who play a really important role in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for all you Catholics out there, she's one of the first writers who talks about purgatory so purgatory is one of these very medieval Catholicy things. It's not heaven. It's not hell. It's this place you go to like work off all of your sins before mm-hmm. you're allowed to get into heaven. Mm-hmm. And she's one of the first people to write about it. So we kind of have her to thank for this weird Catholic history about purgatory. Cool. Thanks, <laughs> girl. A new terrible place to be when you die. 
Yeah, it's definitely uh, an interesting little medieval thing that only some like medieval nuns or monks could have thought up. Yeah. Um, and the way she talks about it um, is she describes her process as setting her hand to writing. While I was doing it, I sensed, as I mentioned before, the deep profundity of, of spiritual exposition and raising myself from illness by the strength I received. I brought this work to a close, though just barely, in 10 years. That's sort of describing this idea that, like, she doesn't feel great until she starts writing. Mm. Still suffering from illness, like, definitely that kind of childhood sickliness has stuck with her. But then mm. once she starts writing, she's reinvigorated and starts doing all of this stuff. So writing, preaching. Oh, Frankie, are you not feeling great? Can we pause and let Frankie go take a nap? She can go take a nap. Go on. Okay, cool. So she starts writing these and she feels great. And so she starts preaching, traveling, basically doing everything she can to sort of spread the word. Mm. Um, and one of the ways she does this is through music. So Ooh. she's one of the earliest female composers that we know about. Um, for all of you theater history nerds out there, she writes the first morality play <laughs> and composes it. So we're, she's the first existing play that we know about that actually has the musical score that accompanied it Whoa. surviving. Um, That's crazy. It's really cool to listen to because it's this Gregorian chant, but sort of pushing the boundaries of what that genre is. So really like high sweeping melodies. Yeah. Like you don't right, like when you think of Gregorian chant as a genre, <laughs> yeah. you don't think of like, like boundary rock, pushing. A rocker of Gregorian chant. She really is in a lot of ways. Um, she writes over 77 pieces, most of which have survived to this day. So she's the only Catholic saint with a discography. She has um, people still like publish and produce and perform her work to this Whoa. day. Um, you can go online and find like Hildegard discography collections if that's, that's what you're looking for. Um, that's crazy. And so she's like doing theology. Thanks. So she's rocking the tunes. And then on top of rocking the tunes, she's also doing some science or at least some like proto science, the medieval version of it. So she writes these two really big books on medicine, um, looking at animals and plants but and some gems in what there. properties. There are li some literal gems, like some properties of stones for healing. So like, oh, she's a hippie. She is. She's the original a super hippie. hippie. So a lot of this work on like what kind of herbs are around and like what do they do? And it's interesting because some of it is like total medieval. Like you have I to bleed about, people to get the humor. I worry back about talking about this, Michael, because if I know one thing about modern medicine, it's that we like to go back a thousand years and be like, they had some good points. And modern doctors are like, please don't. Please don't rub <laughs> leaves in that. You need to go to the doctor. Yeah. Um, and there definitely was some of that. Mo the like humors were a big thing. I was going to so say, are we in humors land? We're yeah. definitely in humors land. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the like chemical properties, if we can call them that, of the herbs and the animals you're looking at turn out to be like pretty accurate. Yeah. And so it's this really cool thing of this medieval monk. She's looking at stuff and she's like getting a lot of it right. Hmm. Um, and, the, and when I say massive books, I mean these are like nine volumes, hundreds of pages at a point where like writing a book takes forever. What else was there to do? Not a lot. <laughs> but like taking the time to do that, which I think is super, super impressive. Wow. Um, so she's done that. She's doing theology, visions. She's doing music, plays. And she's doing some, like, medicine and, like, natural history stuff. So she's, like, 
getting a lot of it done. 12th century. That's mm-hmm. bananas. Yeah. I'm glad her parents sent her to a nunnery. Yeah, it's probably like one of the few she times in history you can to. be like, that's a, a good choice. That she was a solid move. She had like move. 12 children and... And died done. like 45. Yeah. Yeah. Just like a worthy... I mean like... Not to discount. I don't want to crap on moms because they don't get enough credit. But at the same time, like, who would have thought? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so she lives until almost 80. She dies in 1179. Wow. 80? Um, almost 80, which... Oh. 80 in the 1100s? No, thank you. Yeah. Just can't imagine the, like, creaky walking around with the whatever kind of stick you could grab. Oh, my God. All the stairs. Mm -hmm. All the stairs. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And the story is that when she died, there are two shafts of light go flying across the sky and into her room um, right as she died. What does that mean? I don't know. There's not a whole lot of details on that one, but something to do with the Holy Spirit, I think. One for her, one for the spirit. Oh, okay. Um, like she's heading to heaven? Something like that. Oh, okay. Um, and it's pretty quick that people are like, yeah, we're pretty sure she was a saint. Um, but it actually takes until 2012 for the Catholic Church to officially recognize that. She is the, one of the first people who they try the like official canonization system on. Um, yeah, it's a new system, a, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but it takes four tries over hundreds of years because there's a lot of confusion about what counts as a miracle with her and all these things. So in 2012, they're finally like, no, we're just pretty sure she's a saint. Um, I'm okay with miracles not being a requirement for sainthood. Yeah. I think they should just be really admirable people. And that's kind of what they ended up going with for her. Yeah. Um, And she's also named one of the doctors of the church, which for Catholics means like she's got theology down and like she contributed something really important. She's one of only four women to be doctors of the church. That's intense. Um, So yeah, as like Catholic women go she's pretty cool and it's the kind of thing where no one really knew a lot about her until like the second half of the 20th century but a lot of feminist scholars have gotten really interested in her because she's this very prolific female writer from a period where we don't have a lot of everything lasted yeah yeah and especially like a lot of the work she's been doing or was doing about like healing and medicine a lot of women's work that didn't get recorded because Mm. they probably weren't writing about it if they were writing about it, it wasn't in Latin, so it didn't get sort of recorded by the mm. like powers that be. But she is writing about it in Latin, and so it sticks with us, and we get to know a lot more than we otherwise. I would. never knew of her. I never knew of her. Yeah, I, I only came across her that. in like a high school. I was doing like an independent study in high school on the Middle Ages. Yeah, and was reading this really funny book that was like trying to like tell you like what was it like to like deal with culture in the Middle Ages, pretty, and it references this like sassy nun who turns out to be Hildegard sending some like really smacked out letters to these other nuns and like this is super interesting like who would have thought you had sassy nuns in the middle ages um but didn't really go any further than that I was just like okay this is cool this is like a nice little tidbit mm-hmm. um but then went to the dinner party and was like oh that name sounds familiar and then started digging in and was like oh Hildegard's cool yeah she's got some stuff going on that's intense. That's a lot of different things to be known for. Yeah. Which she's... is also probably problematic. It's hard when you don't have, like, the one thing. Yeah. Because then it's just, I don't know, people yeah. like simple. And I think we don't, like, we, like, don't know how to deal with the mystics anymore either. No. It's the thing that we're not really in touch with, and it's also, hard like, to, like. nuns. Nobody wants to hear about nuns. Yeah, which is yeah. sad, because nuns, in my opinion, like, tend to do the pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Have you heard of the cheese nun? I've I have her. heard of the cheese nun. She, I watched her, her episode on Michael Pollan's Netflix uh, show. She's so she cool. She seems so cool. Yeah. yeah. 
And so, it, and the cheese nun is very much continuing in this tradition of Poor nuns. Thing. What's her name? I don't know, and cheese I feel nun? so bad. Um, continuing in this tradition of like nuns being really educated and doing like really important work that doesn't necessarily get Mother Noella. Thank name you, Mother cheese. Noella. Mother so Noella. direct descendant of Hildegard in more ways than one. Way, yeah. Get out. Way to go, Hildegard. Yeah. I love that. Thanks, Michael. Welcome, Katie. So mine is very modern. My lady. How modern is modern? Like, she was born in the 50s. Oh, okay. Like, we're very recent history. But I think she's impacted modern history in a way that we will benefit from for a long time. So I'm going to tell you about Gwen Ifill. Do you know Gwen Ifill? I don't know Gwen Ifill. You don't? I don't. (gasps) I'm so excited for you. Okay. She's born in Queens in uh, 1955. Her parents are immigrants or of immigrant uh, background. I know her dad is like Panamanian, Panama from Panama, and her mother is Barbados. Her dad goes on to become a pastor and becomes a pretty like influential pastor in his church and raises his family within uh, a African American denomination of Episcopalian, I believe. Um, she becomes very influenced by the church for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. And they had six children in total. A lot of mine have six kids. Seems I've noticed that. Number of kids. Yeah, it's like the average of this pre-birth uh, control time. So they move around a lot when she's little. She um, lives various places in New England, Pennsylvania, Buffalo, New York, all over. Um, so there's an element of uh, having to adapt and having to like get in with the people as you move to these new places. She, um, I should state, like, she is African-American. Barbados and Panama, I'm not sure if people understand that kind of heritage, but she's an African-American family, and she ends up going to Simmons College, which is a women's college in Boston, and graduates in 1977 with a degree in communications. Um, While at college, she gets an internship with the Boston Herald American, newspaper which is like a 1977 black woman college educated not thinking there's a lot of that going around probably not and i think the thing about her that's interesting is like she probably has plenty of war stories and i'm sure plenty of people know them the one i found which i don't really want to go into too much is she got a harassing note on her desk while at the boston Herald as an intern Mm -hmm. um telling her to go home and calling her a racial slur Oh, and she was course. like, whatever. And she showed it to editors and she was like, this was on my desk. And they were like, ah, they got really mad. And she was like, I and she just kept doing her work. And mm-hmm. she's like, I, yeah, what else is new? People hate me whenever I'm in a room. I don't care. I'm going to be a journalist. And uh, she does great at the Boston Herald. And um, they end up offering her a job after she graduates. At the time, she was still a student. Mm-hmm. And she says, great. She says, the old white guys had never seen anything like me college educated black women and they didn't know what to do with me or how to deal with me you just deal with them like a person like a person yeah no, that's that seems what a concept too outlandish what a concept what a concept so she's a she gets um she gets a beat i don't know if that's the right word i think so right? is that like a like, yeah you're, you're on a shop talk anyway she gets to um write about the school board of boston at the time when they've just started to enforce 
uh, uh, do forced busing of students, which oh, is like problematic. Which was a great time in Boston's history, right? She's an African American. Like, there's a certain amount of uh, prestige with that. It turns into like quite a big thing. So she makes some waves, and she she does really well. She moves to Baltimore in 1981, and she starts working for the Evening Sun, covering City Hall. And she gets this. I mean, she she self describes her her youth as being very involved in politics. Mm-hmm. She's always been aware of politics. Politics are a part of her home. Uh, her parents ed- influence that and educate and and push that with all of their children. So she st- begins to thrive in press uh, as a political correspondent. So. She eventually, I mean, she's like every three years, she's like advancing. Like you can just see, like she's competent, she's clear, she's doing the work. She proceeds to get promoted with this like great track record. Wait, so wait, she, wait. She gets promoted because she's qualified? Qualified and like competent. Yeah, what? I know. Both things that are, what a concept. Yeah. So she's at the Post, she's at the Washington Post by 1984, covering suburban politics, and she begins to cover presidential bids. Mm-hmm. So she covers like the extreme two candidates for 1988 one of which is jesse jackson um, oh, that's right yeah where he tried to seek nomination i'm not clear about how that went i don't think it went well it but i forget go. how far he got i think he got pretty he far. got pretty far it was like a one of like yeah the telling moments um so after that she gets hired by the times as a congressional correspondent. So not only is she advancing to like more prestigious papers, she's getting more responsibility of what's covered. More mm-hmm. of a national thing, more more of a national face. Yeah. Um, it's also a time when women, let alone women of color, are, are rarely seen as like the f- voices of national concerns. There's this, once again, this theme of like white and male is who gets to tell everybody. Right. And black people report on black people things. There's probably an element of like, you cover Jesse Jackson. Right. Or you're a woman. You're going to cover women. Or you're going to go talk to Hillary. Yeah. So, but she's the kind of one of the first, one of the first. She's not the only. She's definitely one of the first who gets in, gets to be a neutral, gets mm-hmm. to be a new neutral, gets to be a voice of something and be taken seriously because she clearly understands what she's talking about. She's not divisive. She's not, she never wanted to be called a pundit. She was a journalist. She's about fine asking questions and getting answers. Yeah. I love, her, I love her so much. <laughs> um, she's hired as a congressional correspondent. She covered her, she covers uh, Bill Clinton's campaign in 92. Um, she becomes then the White House correspondent for the Times. And it's the early 90s and TV is calling and she be, she's she's a little unsure about tv because she's a black woman she doesn't want to be known as she 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 wants to be able to cover all the things Mm -hmm. as as um evenly as possible and she doesn't want her visual representation to color what she's for lack of a better word to color what she's saying do you know what i mean it's like well that would be your opinion do you know there's some there's some things that she has to like understand yeah not alone uh, not only the fact like she's changing formats so she's going from print to tv and there's just a whole other kind of skill set to learn within that um but she ends up making the transition to tv and everyone thinks she does like amazingly she thought it was difficult but everyone's like she just took it she took to it like no problem um she's not necessarily the first woman of color doing all these things but she's among Mm -hmm. one of one of trailblazing she's yeah very much trailblazing 
um, doing a lot for women in journalism. So she's just, every time you hear about her, she's just getting promoted, getting promoted. So in 1999, Washington Week on PBS, which has been around like 50 years by that point, mm-hmm. um, they get rid of their host and they, it started, cable news is starting to become a thing. So there was a question of, is PBS going to go the route of cable news and try and be like crossfire or pick a stupid show where an idiot tells you their opinion about something rather than a fact. Mm-hmm. And um, it's the dawning age of the new news cycle. <laughs> uh, so then they hire Gwen Eiffel and everyone's like, oh, okay, great, chill. It's going to be, it's going to mm-hmm. be news. It's going to be competent roundtable discussions with journalists who analyze and say facts <laughs> and report about what's coming out of Washington. Why does that sound like such a radical proposition at I know. this point? By the end of this, is going to be a PBS ad. So if you're not into it, just, uh, <laughs> just letting you know. So uh, she gets hired. It's obviously the first black woman to run that program. Let's not dwell on it. She got hired because she's great. And uh, a fellow journalist said she maintains an external... Oh, oh, an external sense of cool and serenity while underneath lie serious smarts, smooth execution, and a healthy dose of skepticism. So she's just, she's made for this kind of, she's doing what she loves and she loves doing it. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it's great. Um, it's a roundtable format, like I said. It's fellow journalists. They talk about what's going on in Washington that week. <laughs> it comes out on Fridays. <laughs> and uh, it's been on TV since forever, so it's like a mainstay. Mm-hmm. She then, it's, we're in the 2000s. She is a uh, first black woman to moderate a vice presidential debate. The first woman of color to moderate a presidential debate happened in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So this is the first VP one. She uh, moderates between John Edwards and Dick Cheney. Oh, so those gems. They, the transcript is worth a read. They're uh, condescending turds, but whatever. It would be to anybody in that position, I think. Debaters aren't fond of mo- fond of moderators, I find. No, that but doesn't seem to be there. Gwen thing. doesn't really care. She's there for answers, and one of the best questions she asks that I think is a testament to like having different viewpoints to ask different questions of people is um, asking. I will. Uh, she says, "I will talk to you about healthcare, Mr. Vice President. You have two minutes, but in particular, I want to talk to you about AIDS." And not about AIDS in China or Africa, but AIDS right here in this country, where black women between the ages of 25 and 44 are 13 times more likely to die of the disease than other than their counterparts. What should the government's role be in helping end the growth of this epidemic? Great question. Great question. Do you know what they talked about? Not Africa. that. <laughs> they talked about Africa because that's where AIDS was. Right, because there's Even though no... she's like, I would like you to talk about black women in this country and their problem with AIDS. And they're like, we don't know anything about that, basically, is how that went. Um, oh, man. It's okay. They answered like politicians answering. Uh, she writes a book. Go figure. It's about Obama. Um, she puts out a book in 2009. Super chill. She uh, Washington Week, she, she ends up taking it on the road during the campaigns and election years. So they're on the road during 08, 12, and 16. And she starts to get audiences to interact with the program mm-hmm. to actually talk to citizens and constituents in different districts to be like, oh, what really cool. is important to you? What do you want to seek out and talk about? Um, she gets a Peabody Award in 2008 for Washington Week. And it's reasoned, reliable contribution to the national discourse and a gold standard for public affairs enthusiasts who prefer illumination to confrontational fireworks. 
Mm. Mm. She's mm. got substance. Um, so she's just like the go-to PBS news. There's an there's something about Gwen Ifill went to PBS on purpose. Mm-hmm. She went to PBS because the news that PBS does was her kind of news. Yeah. And if you're out there, <laughs> I'm going to go into PBS right now. <laughs> if you're out there going like, I hate the news, my guess is you probably hate cable news. Almost definitely. And you probably need to take a look at PBS. I find PBS being very helpful, informative, chill, but serious. I find that they don't have a ticker at the bottom. They don't have graphics that got to ha- get your... And they don't have commercials. And that's all I have to say about that. Okay. Yeah. So in 2013, she and Judy Woodruff, who was a mainstay at the PBS uh, newsroom, were named the first all-female news anchor team in U.S. history. Wait, what year was that again? 2013. 2013. Yes. There's this whole thing about how... A, news should be read by a man. I believe we all know the seminal classic Anchorman. I was just going to say, that seems like... Little sadly how based in fact it is. But um, uh, there's a whole thing about you can't have... You can have two guys. You can have a... Oh, a man and a woman dynamic is actually really nice because there's there's like chemistry, for lack of a better word. Oh, no. There's a balance, you know. It's a whole thing. But two women, it's like... mm, one of them's going to get liked better and it's going to be problematic or you need to have somebody that's like the leader and then one's the less experienced. We need a so voice of authority and that we voice need needs to like, be a man. Mm, probably. Or like you need a clear discrepancy between the women. So like there's a, there's a whole, I'm, there's too many people thinking about it. And not enough people being like, they're both Let's people and they're good it. at their jobs. Let's let them yeah, do it. Yeah, they're both like competent and worked hard for a long time and are capable of reading news. I don't know. She's also named managing editor of the news hour, which is great. So not only is she like presiding over the news, she's controlling, well, she's not controlling, but she's partaking in what news she is delivering. Yeah. Which I think is great. Ratings go up. No one is surprised. Because they're both great. Judy Woodruff is a woman, I would say, I don't want to guess her age, but she's an older woman. She's, she's had a career. Yeah. At this point, Gwen's in her fifties. Mm-hmm. Judy's probably comparable to that, I would yeah, say. Yeah, Judy's in, um, yeah, she would have been in her early 60s. At that early point. 60s, yeah. So they're established journalist ladies who can do the job. Um, they have great chemistry. They are awesome together. Mm-hmm. They are clearly colleagues and friends. They admire each other, and they are beautiful to watch. I recommend it. I really there are clips of them. Need to watch more PBS news. I think you really do. Takeaway. I think everybody needs to. Whenever anybody's, like, I just don't want to. I just want to read what I want. It's like I'm telling you, PBS is there for you. They're chill. They are unbiased. They are bringing you facts, and it's not about them. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, it's not about them. They want to bring you news. When you're one, when, when you're pining for, when you're mad at media, you're not mad at PBS. We all get mad at media, I think, which is fair. So uh, Eiffel says one time, she says, uh, I remember the first time I saw a black woman sitting behind a news anchor's desk. This was in the 60s. Her name was Melba Tolliver, and I recall she wore an afro, and I was blown away. With more women in front of the camera, we can do that for more little girls. And I think, yeah, 
representation now. It just matters. It just matters. And it's just but it's great so, to see somebody who's good at their job doing it. Yes. It's just always a pleasure. Yeah. And it's not that it matters just in movies or just in like TV it's, shows. No. It's everywhere. It's really mm-hmm. important because you never know what the thing is. A world be. opens up to you when you see somebody else doing it. Yeah. For lack of a better. Anyway. When asked why it took so long for women to be in the most visible spots, she said, because men rule the world. I've never worked at a place where the people who rose didn't look like the people in power. And she says, we've slogged away for so long, it just seemed to make sense. So. So a realist. So, yeah, she's she's practical, but at the same time, she's not going to let it stop her. stop her or, like, put her down. Yeah. She rises to the challenge in a way that's admirable. That's really amazing. Okay, so we're going to take a turn. Of course we it's are. It's not a great turn. At some point in this time frame of getting on PBS and rocking it out and being great at her job and being admiral, she gets diagnosed with endometrial cancer, which is a cancer of the uterine area. And uh, it, she goes into ther- chemotherapy while doing Washington Week and the news hour every day at PBS. So she gets chemo. There's an anecdote that she would get chemo Thursday, do Washington Week on Friday collapse for the weekend and just be like we're like trying to get through chemotherapy which is an onslaught of your body yeah and then back at work on monday and then do it while traveling you know you'd have to go out it's then it's 2016 kind of a big year a little bit so she's out doing the thing going traveling doing all the stuff and continues to report continues to just slog away with judy um it's uh, yeah. She says, I'm very keen about the fact that a little girl now watching the news when they see me and Judy sitting side by side, it'll occur to them that it's perfectly normal, that it won't seem like any big breakthrough at all. And um, I, sad to say, really, I knew of Gwen Ifill, and then I think it was one of the conventions in 2016, which I was watching in a hotel room at a job that I didn't enjoy. <laughs> Spoiler alert, or I was just like having a stressful week and I was watching them and I have little doubt of how you felt about how you think I felt about the election of 2016, but I was really Mm -hmm. motivated by the Democratic Convention. It was a little weird at times with the balloons and stuff, but at the same time you felt you felt good and you felt like, come on, kick him in the kick him in the face. And uh, at the end of their broadcast. I was watching them talk about the convention and it kept uh, rolling on them from like behind. It was like zooming out over the convention and you could see Judy and, and Gwen in a glass kind of office above. It was like zooming out and they just looked at each other and they're like fist bumped. <laughs> and I was like, I love them. That's I'm a incredible. fan. I'm here for them in the news. That's yes, all I please. needed. That's all I want from my news team. I just, I loved it. So I, I got, it was like a perfect ending to this convention. Um, she keeps working up until November 14th, 2016. She passes away from endometrial and breast cancer. She's 61. It was pre-crap month. Yeah. I remember that happened and I was like, so just, it was like a double punch. Because I don't know if you guys know, but at the beginning of November, a horrible thing happened. And uh, we're still dealing with it. But then she dies. And it's just like, it felt like 
this beautiful, unbiased, gorgeous voice that was like a great asset to yeah. our dialogue in this country died. And it was just like, <laughs> it just hurt. It, it just hurts. So News Hour did an hour special that weekend, that Friday of the week she died. And it was a retrospective of her career. And it's on YouTube. And I recommend it if you want to like feel your feelings about Gwen Eiffel, because all of these journalists are just like trying to talk about her and mm. crying. And, like, John Dickerson, who's, like, the most professional, is just, like, you could tell whenever the camera's off him, he's, like, just, like, weeping in a corner. I mean, it's, at the end, Judy Woodruff's, like, voice breaks. It's just too much. It's too much. Um, But she gets people to recognize her from, like, Paul Ryan, you know, to Loretta Lynch and Barack Obama. Like, her competence and um, professionalism was felt by both sides, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, remarked upon. And Michelle Obama attended her funeral and thousands of others at the Metropolitan African Methodist Episcopal Church, which is the church that her dad was a big mm-hmm. member of, and which she was a huge um, member of. Um. Ugh, there's a lot of sad stuff here that I don't want to read because she's just beautiful and I don't want to think about her that like that. But her, you could tell her colleagues felt her importance. Yeah. And over her life, she received like 20 doctorates, honorary doctorates. She was on the boards of so many uh, committees and literacy project and the Academy of Science. She got the National Press Club's highest honor in 2015. She was awarded many honors. Um, she and Judy got a Walter Cronkite Award for excellence. She is a big deal. Yeah. She's incl- she's just amazing. And uh, a year after her death, on November 14, 2017, Simmons College announced the Gwen Ifill College of Media Arts and Humanities building. Oh, my God. To be made in her honor. That's incredible. Um. I think the other best thing that somebody said about her was John Dickerson on that uh, PBS special where he said you could read by the light of her smile. So she was clearly like a loved person and and friend and like colleague and just also admired by all these people. There's a really nice legacy of her helping others get into journalism, especially Mm -hmm. young women of color and being open to being a mentor for anybody that asked it of her. And, uh, I think there's a nice article about her that she wrote. She wrote a bunch of columns online called Gwen's Take or something. Gwen's. Hmm. And she wrote like 100 columns over her career. And one of them was within the campaign of 2016 and talking about how she wanted to write about meanness and how it was kind of overtaking the conversation. And within that, she said, call me the last living optimist. I think most people strive for kindness, even though we sometimes fall short, which I think is sweet. Yeah. Um, it's amazing to see like a public figure live a life like that and still walk away yeah. with like such an optimism about people. Yeah. And I'm going to play a clip of her speaking with this other journalist. And I might have already said the quote in the episode. So if it's, if it's redundant, you don't need to put it in the actual episode. But I just want to hear her talk for a little bit. So this is Gwen Eiffel. This is the end of, um, this is an interview she did talking about representation. 
and Shirley Chisholm. I mean, there were women, black women who were out there speaking their truth in an environment where it wasn't generally welcome. As I listen to you talk about this, though, I'm imagining children watching television now and seeing you. Okay. She's going to make me a little perplexed here. You know, when I was a little girl, there was a woman named uh, Melba Tolliver who was on the news and she had a big afro. And I just was transfixed by this idea. That didn't make me want to be in television as much as it made me want to tell the story. Hmm. And every now and then, I am not particularly interested in, you know, I just get caught up in whatever the day's work is. And invariably, somebody will come up to me and tell me the story of their little girl. And it always stops me in my tracks. Because as, as long as I remember that there's someone on the other side of the piece of equipment, the camera, who's watching me with expectation, and it can shape what they do next, I have to take what I do seriously every single day. I love her. She seems amazing. She's great. We need more Gwen Ivers. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you liked the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie. Thank you for listening to Missing History. 